yeah, please, please explain why you want Boris Johnson's hair. That's well, a, I've always wanted to dye my hair, but I've never known what colour to dye it except for grey. Um, and yeah. <laughs> you want to be a like, crazy old professor. I just, yeah, exactly. I just like the messiness <laughs> and the unkemptness. You know it's important if you're Boris, you, you've got to you've got to ruffle up your hair actively to make it messy before yeah. going Organized on stage. chaos. Oh, Organized yeah, no. chaos. No, no, I feel the same way. Welcome to the Pin Factory, the Addersmith Institute's podcast. My name is Matthew Lash. I'm head of research at the ASI. In this week's episode, I'm once again joined by my ever-reliable co-host and our head of programs, Daniel Pryor, as well as Dr. Chris Berg, the co-director of the RMIT Blockchain Innovation Hub. This week, we're going to be discussing the economy after COVID, the rise of NFTs, and whether or not greed is good. It's one year since Boris Johnson first delivered the famous words, stay at home, protect the NHS, and save lives. Fundamentally, uprooting the lives of millions and reshaping our economy overnight. Chris, uh, you, uh, when the lockdown mania began, uh, basically wrote a book within a few weeks uh, titled Unfreeze, How to Create a High Growth Economy After the Pandemic. Uh, obviously thinking that the pandemic was, uh, and the lockdowns were going to be a sooner thing of the past. I'm just wondering um, if you could, I guess, run us through what your, your thesis was about the economic impact. Sure. Th- thanks, Matthew. And thank you for having me. Um, so our argument, and I, I did it with a um, bunch of colleagues here at RMIT, our argument was that um, the idea that you could put a short, sharp hold on the economy, that you could hold everything in place, that you could pe- keep people employed in their existing um, businesses, you could just you could just freeze the economy was utter nonsense and was um a fundamental misunderstanding of how economies are structured. Um, it's kind of interesting to think back on that argument now, <coughs> nearly a year from when we published it, because I think the idea was prevalent in March, um, April, May, that we could do this. We could just hold everything in place. Um, but now as the world has seen up, down, lockdowns um, around the uh, in almost every country of varying severity, um, I think it's clear now the um, damage that we are doing to the economy um, just purely through uncertainty, I think. Uh, Ultimately, what we've seen or or the underlying dynamic that we've seen is the um, breaking of a lot of existing economic relationships, breaking of a lot of the ways we operate. We've um, put entire businesses, entire sectors of the economy into furlough for months at a time. Um, even if you just look at the arts and culture sector, you can see how um, uh, how hard they are trying to stay afloat if they are even afloat at all at this stage. Um, so I think I think to the extent that our, um, our book was prescient, just underlining the fundamental economic damage that these lockdowns do, um, and trying to hopefully spell out some ways that we can we can get over this. 
so, so we'll come on to that in a second. I want to kind of just say, so I very much uh, bought your thesis at the time. I think there's, there's obviously a lot of truth to the fact that the economy is not a machine. Um, and, and the idea of the economy as a machine is what leads into central planning and the, the idea that you can you know, pull certain levers and, and have predictable outcomes. But as we know, the economy is very complex. Knowledge is dispersed, as Hayek told us. It's spontaneous, dynamic. In a lot of ways, I, I think we saw a lot of the best of you know, our, our relatively free economies in response to the crisis, the adaptability of people, um, what we're doing right now remotely as a, as a podcast was a relatively rare occurrence and now it's something people do every day. Uh, what we saw in terms of restaurants doing flipping to takeaway overnight, um, what, what we saw in terms of millions <laughs> of people um, changing the way they work and working from home, we'll, we'll, I think we'll come back and discuss that a little bit more as a, as a change from the pandemic. It does seem like the story isn't all negative, that there is a bit of a, a positive story here as well about the ability to adapt. Oh, there's there's absolutely a positive story. Um, and I don't think I was surprised, but I was I was very pleased to see how the economy adapted very rapidly. Um, we, uh, back, in, back in March last year, April last year, we spent a lot of time talking about um, uh, crises at the supermarket. We spent a lot of time worrying about massive supply chain shocks. And obviously, at the start of every lockdown, there was runs on things like toilet paper, there was runs on um, uh, hand sanitizer and so forth. Um, not only did those markets adapt actually really, really quickly um, relative to the, to the shock, but we didn't see those sorts of shocks um, extend throughout many product categories and many parts of the economy itself. So I think supply chains, while there's some areas that um, uh, have been sluggish, you know, it, it's hard to buy, for example, it's hard to buy a bike at the moment, or at least it's more expensive and they're in, um, uh, they're in demand. For the most part, we've seen actually incredibly rapid adaption to, to supply changes. Then we've seen those technological adapt adaptations that you um, are mentioning. We've seen a lot of um, acceleration of existing trends. So obviously we already lived in a world of Uber Eats and menu log. We even lived in a world where there were things like those dark restaurants, those restaurants that exist only in um, shipping containers that, that um, serve only takeaway or delivery. Um, but we've seen a rapid acceleration of those um, uh, in, in the developed world, certainly, um, and a rapid acceleration of, of these sorts of um, existing trends. One of the things that you mentioned just in your opening remarks there was that uncertainty is one of the key reasons why you can't just freeze an economy without having bad effects down the line. How much of that do you think is from the kind of planning or the, the, the execution of the lockdown itself? Because it's, it seems possible, you know, in the UK, obviously, we've got these set dates for reopening various sectors and things like that. You can, at least in theory, mitigate some of the, the uncertainty effects, even if you can't completely do so. So do you think that that's a kind of possibility for rehabilitating lockdowns in a way that's not quite so damaging to the economy or we're still too screwed by by any yeah yeah look daniel as as someone who lived through an 11 week lockdown that was supposed to go for two weeks or three weeks <laughs> um uh i i think the oh look look it's, it's better than nothing right it's it's better if they do um, if governments do try to commit to existing timelines but i think the last year has shown us how um provisional timelines, promises to open and lockdown are. Um, they may want to commit, but they really struggle to credibly commit. Now, to be fair to them, 
viruses don't abide by timelines. And I, I think looking at the UK's um, timelines from a distance, uh, you know, the, the, the um, vaccination process is hopefully a predictable process, but the spread of a virus and um, the population's risk appetite is not predictable. Um, and the public demand for lockdowns or public opposition to lockdowns, again, is not predictable. And, and so um, the UK government's going to have to respond to those demands, not just its existing timeline. But the, but the um, uh, so I, I'm not sure that there is a way to do this credibly. I, I mean, I just think in, um, in fact, I bumped into Matthew on the plane on the way to Queensland for some reason the other day. But every time we travel interstate, and we're, of course, very lucky to be able to travel interstate at the moment, there is that that risk and you pack for the, the possibility that you'll be stuck in another state or you'll be stuck in hotel quarantine for uh, a, a fortnight um, on the way back um, because we just don't know how our governments are going to respond to any given outbreak, any given change in um, uh, virus spread. Uh, now, that's that's just us travelling to Queensland, um, uh, which is a trivial thing, but imagine if you're a... Um, music venue, imagine if you're a art studio, imagine if you're um, a, an event promoter. Um, the uncertainty is, is just crippling regardless of what the government says. I'm kind of interested in whether or not we're potentially being too pessimistic in our approach. And, and it's not that I, I disagree with you about um, the, the premise of your argument or the fact that the uncertainty is causing problems. I mean, we in Victoria, there was a five-day shutdown and I read about businesses that said, well, we don't know whether that's the last lockdown. We're shutting up shop now. This is it. We, we can't handle this anymore. Um, but at the same time, it, you don't seem to get the vibe, uh, at least in Australia at the moment, that that people you know aren't out there willing to spend, that businesses aren't open. And there's obviously been some business failures, but we haven't seen um, mass unemployment. We haven't seen... Uh, really the, the kind of apocalyptic scenario that you might expect by shutting down the economy for so long. And I, I'm, I'm kind of wondering now whether or not, maybe whether it's because of the adaptability of business or whether it's because there has been at least some effectiveness of state support programs, whether or not the impact isn't as bad as it could have been. Now, of course, there's still um, the Australia's equivalent of the furlough program still running. Maybe that's what's massively subsidizing businesses. Maybe when that's over, we're going to see a, a huge jump in unemployment and, and the, the situation will, will turn quite dire. But is it potential just on the basis that people have so much money saved up, that there's been so much stimulus, that things won't necessarily go as bad um, after lockdowns? Yeah, no, I think there's a lot to that. Um, uh, in my career, I've seen a lot of predictions made about catastrophic effects of government policy and rarely are they as catastrophic as, um, uh, rarely do they turn out as catastrophically as predicted, um, even when I when I disagree with the underlying policy. Um, uh, there is there is the element that, you know, those, um, uh, those furloughs, that government support, that is going to end actually really, really soon in Australia, but at the same time, the economy, um, with the exception of some sectors like the, the aviation sector and international aviation, the economy is is largely up and running. Um, you can go to concerts, you can go to events. Um, so so a lot of it, in fact, we're moving in Victoria to 100% um, uh, office. So 100% of people can go into their office at any given time now, um, very shortly at least. Um, so, so, you know, I, I think there's a lot to that. Um, but uh, having said that, we, we've spent the last year adapting to this new environment. 
there is still a, um, an enormous amount of economic activity going on. It is disrupted economic activity, but part of that economic activity is to service the disruption, to service the new industries and new practices that um, we've done. So I, I think I think you, you, you make a very good point that um, a free market is a highly resilient market. That's part of the reason that we like it, right? That's the um, fact that prices adjust in response to external shocks, the fact that expectations adjust through external shocks. Um, uh, that's that's a feature of the free market, and and that's that's good. I guess from from my perspective, the thing to think about now that we're over a year in is looking at what sort of measures we can do to really come out of it successfully. And for me, one of the things that really springs to mind is flexible labour markets, especially when we've got uh, the kind of the furlough schemes that be going on. We've got, we're going to have inevitably this significant reallocation of labour once those support programs come to an end we're going to have people who have maybe de-skilled somewhat in various areas over the course of the lockdown the kind of uh, scarring effect on unemployment and it's good for at least from the uk perspective some of the stuff relating to i mean for example our, our low pay commission uh, talks about what the minimum wage rises should be and they've, they've deferred some of the, the larger minimum wage rises but other things that spring to mind there for flexible labor market are things like immigration as well which is going to be a difficult one to to really to really square with a lot of the restrictions on international travel that are coming through so it'd be really interesting to see how how immigration plays a role in that and whether or not it's going to be you know welcomed as, as necessary for, for these new jobs or, or whether in fact it's going to be the complete opposite yeah look Look, I think the immigration one, I'll come to that in a moment, but, but more generally, the, the labour market flexibility is, is absolutely fundamental. But it's a special case of a broader point, that the regulations that we have introduced over the last couple of decades as the regulatory state has grown, as we um, uh, liberalised and denationalised our economy, we regulated our economy in response. Um, uh, the regulatory state fixes organizations, business practices, supply chains, contractual arrangements um, into certain patterns. Um, uh, sometimes that's because it makes it expensive just to find new ways of doing things. But sometimes that's because um, regulation specifies certain ways of doing things. The regulations will say, well, you know, this is what a taxi looks like. What doesn't a taxi look like? It doesn't look like what Uber does. This is what employment looks like. It doesn't look like independent contracting. So everybody has to be funneled in that direction. Um, that and, and that's fine. That's that's a that's a rich country's game. If you if you're so rich, if you're doing so well, you can afford to have those regulations. It really comes a problem when you get these sudden shocks, where suddenly old ways of doing things are no longer profitable. Where old, um, where businesses that had relied or, or, or fit very nicely into regulatory frameworks are suddenly unable to find new ways of um, uh, adjusting their business models and so forth. And that's exactly the time when you want that flexibility. And unfortunately, overregulation prevents you from having that flexibility. It's most obvious in um, labor market regulation, but it is also it, it, it is the general story of the regulatory state. It locks us into old ways of doing things that makes it hard to change. The example that springs to mind is what we talked about in last week's podcast relating to Uber in the UK starting to treat their driver partners as workers and that sort of move away from a flexible working arrangement um, partially due to, to 
the Supreme Court's ruling that they must be classified as workers is, is just the opposite of what we need to be doing here. If you imagine you're a, someone who perhaps lost their job during lockdown and you became a part-time Uber driver and it helps that it's part-time and you can choose your hours because you might need to look after a parent or, or a child or something like that. At the end of the day, that's being undermined by these sort of measures, things that are supposed to, at least in theory, give you more you know, security end up giving you far less and restrict your options for, for changing the way that you practice things in this new and, and slightly different world to what we had before. So I, I think that's super interesting. I've been thinking about that recently. Um, the demand to get um, uh, Uber drivers into some corporate organization. Um, the reason I think that that's happening at a political level is because the government wants to be able to negotiate with someone who controls the labour market. It can't negotiate with the individual drivers themselves. It can't negotiate with independent contractors themselves. It needs them to have a boss. So to the extent that the left have been railing against sort of the, the boss, the management of capitalism, in fact, there's a symbiotic relationship between management and government or management and labor because they want someone to negotiate with the new decentralized economy that uber is such a good harbinger of um, is actually very threatening to the old ways of controlling the economy the old ways of regulating yeah i think it kind of speaks to that that broader tension we have at the moment which is that, that we know in order to be able to get out of this crisis most effectively we need the economy um and and the enterprising innovative part of it the private sector to take over responsibility for where, what the public sector has done over the last 12 months um and of course those on the other side of this debate say well now that we've shown that the public sector can do all these things during a time of crisis it, it should continue to do that during the, the the normal time we should have a, a more active entrepreneurial role for the state i think that's absolutely the wrong conclusion um and to understand that, that the state is not what's going to create the jobs, create the economic activity that we need, ultimately to pay back all the debt that we've borrowed to survive through the crisis, as well as create the jobs of the future, which aren't necessarily the jobs that existed pre-pandemic. And this is where dynamism is so important because we, we do have changing um, experiences and, and particularly when it comes to working from home and different things and needs and wants that come around for that. Even if you're not working at home full time in the future, if you're doing a couple of days a week, it's going to reshape quite a lot of things. I think we, we need to adapt to that as much as possible well it's 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 madness isn't it because how do we get out of this crisis i i don't know i, I, I none of us listening to this podcast or speaking on this podcast know exactly how we're going to get into those new jobs there's no one at the commonwealth treasury or the department of industry that knows exactly where to move people through the cultural industry we need to, or individuals need to discover it. We, as a community, need to discover those opportunities and build those new business models that will thrive in a post-COVID environment. Just as we have invented new things that have thrived during COVID as well, none of that has come from the government that locks us down. All of that has come from the um, uh, just the spontaneous order of um, lots of maps of different preferences and, and, um, and, and self-interest. Well, talking about the spontaneous order and new innovations, let's move on to our next section about NFTs. I thought that might be your segue there. I was waiting for it. <laughs> <laughs> 
there has been an explosion in the discussion of NFTs or non-fungible tokens in recent weeks with people forking out millions for the likes of tweets and animated GIFs. My personal favorite, of course, was over half a million dollars, I believe, forked out for a GIF of the Nyan Cat. Uh, but Chris, I guess to start off with here, what exactly are NFTs? What are non-fungible tokens? Well, fingers crossed that non-fungible tokens are what leads us out of this um, uh, recession. <laughs> so so non-fungible tokens are, um, uh, are, are both fascinating and actually kind of boring when you describe them. They are digital assets. Um, so they can be digital assets that exist on the internet or um, on a blockchain themselves, or on a distributed ledger themselves, or they can just be pointers to other things in the real world. So a non-fungible token could be a pointer to some property I own, even my house, or it could be a pointer to um, a GIF of Niancat, or it could be a um, or, or, or it could be an actual um, asset on on a chain. Why they're interesting? I mean, so so we're in the middle of a um, crypto bull market at the moment, and um, first, we focused a lot on um, decentralized finance, and now we're moving into this NFT world where there's a lot of people experimenting with new ways of using this base, basic digital architecture to um, uh, control, release, buy, and sell um, uh, online artworks. Um, so you mentioned the Nyan Cat. Um, there's an artist called Beeple who released a, um, who sold a non fungible token actually through the Christie's auction house for 69 or US $69 million, um, which is an extraordinary amount of money. Um, uh, people are selling um, rights to, or they're selling non-fungible tokens of um, uh, their scholarship. They're selling non-fungible tokens of their tweets. They're doing all those sorts of things. But the question is, well, what on earth are you buying when you buy a non-fungible token? Um, because I can go to the Beeple page and look at the picture that has been sold. It's a digital picture. It's freely available for me. I don't own it, but I can do basically anything that I want with it. I could copy it onto my hard drive. I could um, just stare at it at my leisure. Um, so, so the real debate is we've invented something. We've invented something that looks kind of cool, we can buy and sell it, but are we buying, selling anything with rights attached? How on earth is something that has no ability to exclude or um, uh, exclude others from using have that much value? And that's a super interesting question. Well, Chris, it, it almost makes you a, a postmodernist in a way that if, if someone ascribes value to it, then uh, who are we to decide? No, I like to say it makes me a free market economist. Uh, Matthew. Ah, well, I mean, digitally, Vikoski, of course, would say there's not that much difference between the two. Um, uh, I think it's kind of uh, an interesting comparison I, I've, I've heard in recent days is between NFTs and the issue faced by uh, photographers uh, a few hundred years ago now, where they took a photo of something and then, I'm like, traditional artists haven't, they haven't painted, they haven't made it, but they want some kind of ownership to over it and they want some kind of way to tokenize it. And effectively, the solution for photographers was to do prints and then put a number on it and sign it. But of course, anyone else could do a print or do a similar print or take a similar photo. Um, and it's the challenge of, of ownership and defining the ownership to create the value behind it, to create the perception of the value behind it. And I, I suppose in some ways, this is the, the kind of digital version of it. It's almost a surprise it's taking this long um, to, to work out a way 
to kind of tokenize and, and monetize and, and organize um, digital content in a, in a buying and selling manner. Yeah. So it's it, NFTs are a really good way to demonstrate ownership over something, um, cryptographically secure ownership. So it's like a, the title to a piece of work. But if you wanted to enforce a copyright or intellectual property claim, you would have to um, over over a photograph or over a GIF or whatever. You you would have to use the real world courts to do so. So they're not self enforcing of the ownership of that particular digital asset. Now that doesn't sound very appealing when you describe it like that. But but let's not overemphasize how effectively IP works in the real world. So the thing that always killed me, I edited a magazine for a long time, the thing that always killed me is that um, classical pieces of art, which of course, artworks, paintings um, from before the 20th century are well out of copyright. But did you know that um, there is copyright on the photographs of those classical pieces of art, which are functionally indistinguishable from each other? Um, uh, now, now you, can, you can still use them um, uh, if you're willing to run the risk of um, uh, of a potential being subject to a copyright claim or an intellectual property claim, um, uh, but I think the uh, so so I, I don't think we should overstate the coherence of IP laws as they stand. What is interesting though is what is the, what what are you buying when you buy an NFT if you are willing to accept that that NFT can be freely copied and shared by people who aren't you and you won't be able to get any money for it? Well, what you're buying is the sensation of ownership. You're, you're buying, owning something. Um, and it turns out that for some people, in fact, a large number of people, and particularly people who have um, uh, disposable wealth, that is actually really valuable. One of the things I really find interesting is that people, when they first hear about NFTs, think it's, it's a slightly crazy idea. You know, why would you fork out half a million dollars for an animated GIF that you can see a copy of anyway? For free, and obviously the the answer in that case is well, there's value ascribed to to ownership specifically, and this is a concept that's very well known about in the kind of traditional art world and has been for quite some time. It's the reason why people travel to see the original Mona Lisa over you know some other establishment creating a very convincing copy of it and displaying that. No one will go and see the copy, even though it might be completely accurate of it because it's not the original because it doesn't have quite the same it doesn't capture the imagination in the same way it, you know it wasn't touched by the artist's hand all of these different bundles of values that go into making an original more valuable to some people i guess that the interesting thing there then is that you've got this this new wave of people who are who are investing in or, or arguably investing in nfts um, how much of that do you think is is kind of speculation versus uh, maybe patronage, as you wrote about uh, recently, I believe. Yeah, I mean, a massive amount of speculation, obviously. Um, uh, <laughs> Let's be honest here. <laughs> I don't want to break it to you, but the crypto world has speculators in it. Um, it's very scary. Um, uh, but but the so a massive amount of speculation, and this is an experimental technology, and we are discovering what it does. But I do think it is, so I had a piece in um, Coindesk, which is a big um, crypto-based publication. Um, I, I think it is a, a sign of a type of funding of the arts um, that harks back to old patronage model. Uh, so, so in the historical model of art patronage, you would have a, um, a, a wealthy patron 
who would sponsor the artwork or even sponsor the career of a talented artist. And then um, uh, that artist would then go off and paint things that the um, made the patron happy, but also made the public happy. They might um, build buildings. They might um, uh, they might paint paintings. Those paintings might go into some the patron's private collection, or they might go into a museum. And we still see a lot of that idea of patronage ownership when you travel. If you <laughs> remember travel, but when I traveled, I used to go to a lot of museums, and you can um, uh, uh, in, in major art museums, you'll see this has this work is owned by or donated by, and it'll be named. So, so those patrons are, are getting the benefit of reputation from just sponsoring the artist. What's exciting about this new model of patronage, as I see it, is all those ownership values are still uh, still accrue to the patron. So, in fact, they accrue even more. We can cryptographically demonstrate that this person was the patron of this particular artwork. This person bought and paid for and is in some way sponsoring that artist. But at the same time, the artworks are not hidden in private museums. They're not designed to um, flatter the um, uh, attentions of the patron. They're available freely on the internet for anybody to have a look at. I think that's actually a really appealing Vision. I think it's a very appealing vision just for creative people who are working in the creative industry right now. You can imagine a world in which you have wealthy um, people buying the NFT of a famous artwork or of, of a major artwork or of a song or a video or something, thereby sponsoring the um, production of the artwork for the artist, but releasing it freely on the internet for anybody to see. Um, uh, so you and I, who may not be in the position of buying $69 million Beeple painting, are still able to enjoy that while Beeple get $69 million at the same time. Uh, art is hard to fund. This is a, a culture is hard to fund. And this is a really interesting new way of doing so. And that's why I think the cultural sector has been so excited about it. And, and another way on top of that, uh, I understand can be done as well, is that um, traditionally with art, you can often include contracts that the artists will get a portion of subsequent sales. But that's a very hard to enforce that right because often sales are private. Um, but of course, you, to some extent, you can fix that problem with NFTs because you can build in smart contracts as well uh, and, and therefore ensure continued um, funding of the original artists throughout their life as a result of resales as the value potentially of that art goes up. Yeah, that's right. So resale royalty rights are increasingly common. Um, in Australia, we have them over um, Indigenous art or a lot of Indigenous art. Um, uh, the idea being that you know the original artist should, if the if if on the secondary market the price goes up extraordinarily, then the original artist should gain some value out of that over and above what they got on the first sale. Um, you can code those in. Um, there are some there are some engineering challenges that we're still facing in this sector right now on that. But um, uh, in a world of smart contracts and a world of digital only art. It's actually quite easy to code those in to a um, to an NFT system. So again, uh, whether whether the investment of sixty nine million dollars into a Beeple artwork or um, half a mil into Nyan Cat, it turns out to be a really good idea. Whether uh, what we're seeing is speculation, um, we're seeing just some really radical experimentation in the way we fund and support artists through this technology, which um, is super exciting. And that's why we like the space, right? That's why blockchain and crypto is so, so fascinating.
yeah, the, the experimentation for me is, is what's so interesting. We shouldn't be expecting a kind of one big innovation that we can point at and say, well, you know, this is this is going to completely change and revolutionize the way that we do art. It's saying here's lots of little experiments, little companies that are trying out different things using NFTs and some of them could really help artists. And I feel like that there has been a there's been a backlash, but it's been partially concocted by people who just don't like crypto or blockchain or anything that comes along with it. I was reading uh, yesterday an article in Vice talking about how uh, NFTs won't save small independent musicians, which is, um, you know, very, very sad. And then in the same <laughs> article, they've got literally in the same article, they've got an interview with uh, an independent hip hop artist who talks about how she sold songs on catalog, which is a marketplace where musicians can put NFTs that represent their songs up for auction and then sell them and also retain the ability to share those songs however they please. And she's talking about how it's allowing her to live well and how as a woman of color, she's been able to, to really monetize on her own creativity. So it seems like they're, they're really trying to concoct a backlash that doesn't seem to exist even among the art community. Well, there's, there's two things going on there. First of all, I mean, it is a, a bunch of tools that allow people to be creative in the way that they, they support themselves while they're doing, while they're producing culture. Um, but the other thing about NFTs is I've spent, my colleagues have also spent, we've spent weeks now talking about NFTs. It's not the first innovation in blockchain. Last year, we were fascinated in decentralized finance, but no one wants to talk to you on breakfast radio about new derivative smart contracts on um, uh, you know new new ways of decentralized exchange using automated market makers with constant product market maker functions. No one wants to talk to you because they, they do. Got, they haven't got podcast hosts like me and Matthew. We talk that's, about that that's all day long. That's true. <laughs> but but they do want to talk about. But you bought a JPEG on the internet, but you don't own the JPEG. Everybody wants to talk about that, and that's a that's a nice way to come into this into these yeah. interesting conversations. I think. I think it's kind of beautifully. Uh, irreverent in a sense and there's been a bit of a backlash from the kind of modern contemporary art community saying the ridiculousness of it and the lowbrow nature of it but of course that's the same criticism that's used against every new generation of art just the the absurdity the fact that this isn't real art this shouldn't be valued in the same way we've valued previous generations of art uh, and in a sense you, you can see nfts as something could end up being actually normalized digital art being normalized uh, the way to value and monetize it being normalized and just being another form of art that maybe some old fogies don't like very much, but overall is a flourishing industry. Yeah, I think I think what we are waiting to see is how the court systems respond to um, non-fungible tokens of either digital assets or real-world assets. So um, to the extent that if I own a non-fungible token of my house, Will the court system recognize that as title um, or my car or my lawnmower or um, anything like that? Um, or even a digital asset, will I be able to enforce an intellectual property claim using that as the basis of that title? Um, that's not super exciting if you're into the crypto anarchy um, uh, world that is really fascinating that many people are in the cryptocurrency space and blockchain space. Um, but ultimately, if we've got a tokenization of the economy, tokenization of scarce capital across the economy, digital and non-digital, that gives us enormous opportunities to do really, really interesting and clever things 
imagine rebuilding the sharing economy around decentralized services rather than centralized companies. Imagine um, being able to use um, idle assets that stick around in your garage to lend them out digitally, lend them out um, uh, in a way that um, uh, returns returns money to you. That, that's a that's a fantastic use of the planet's resources, of the economy's resources. And if we can if we can get uh, the legal systems to recognise that, then NFTs are a hell of a foundational infrastructure for for, for prosperity. Well, you mentioned the planet's resources and that it gives me the perfect opportunity to seamlessly segue into my final question. You guys are fantastic at segways. Have I mentioned that? (laughs) Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, speaking of the planet's resources, there's (laughs) a kind of really big objection to all things crypto and blockchain that we haven't actually, we haven't really addressed on this podcast before, but it's one that uh, even a a libertarian-leaning colleague of mine who I will not name um, for their sake, basically led them to conclude we should just completely scrap all attempts to use any sort of cryptocurrency or blockchain. And it's that it uses an awful lot of energy. Um, The kind of latest estimate that we had from the University of Cambridge looking at Bitcoin alone said it was around 130 terawatt hours uh, of energy per year, which is about the same as Argentina. Uh, Should we be concerned with uh, cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology more generally that this could be negatively impacting the environment and maybe is that a fair trade-off for some of the the advances we might see in a, a new world of art and new ways of something up look it's a, it's an interesting and complex question there's two points to really make um first of all there's a compared to what question so um let's say we live in a world of hyper bitcoinization for example where bitcoin becomes or replaces the usd as the um global currency well we expend a massive amount of energy the U.S. government does spends a massive amount of energy protecting and enforcing um, uh, global U.S. dollar dominance. Um, uh, you could make an argument that a great deal of the U.S. military strength um, helps back up U.S. dollar dominance. Um, so, to the extent that we can replace that, um, uh, that that would be a positive thing, and, and we would be saving energy rather than um, expending it, at least on on most estimates. Um, But I actually do think that it is a serious challenge, um, and I do think it's something that we should be caring about. I think there will be a spur of, um, and there is a spur towards clean uh, energy, cleaner um, uh, production of things like Bitcoin. In fact, um, there is some suggestion that clean Bitcoin, so Bitcoin that has been mined using clean energy, actually trades at a premium. Um, uh, on some markets from some investors who want to buy uh, Bitcoin without the without without the stench of brown coal, if you will. Um, uh, but there's also massive in, innovation in this space. Um, so we're not just talking about blockchains and cryptocurrencies that are based on these proof of work, high energy intensive mining algorithms. We're also moving into a world where there is what we call proof of stake where it's not the expenditure of energy that um, secures the network, but it's the amount of value that is um, staked on the network, so locked up to protect it. And in fact, most of what we're talking in the NFT space is on the Ethereum blockchain. Ethereum is moving from a proof of work, so electricity intensive, to a proof of stake model. In fact, they've already launched the proof of stake, what they call ETH2, um, and they're likely to accelerate the shift from um, uh, to, to from all, bring all the value 
and all the um, uh, all, all the assets onto this new proof of stake network. So this is extraordinary innovation um, here. I think we're, we we have to recognise that this is an early stage technology. What Satoshi Nakamoto invented was not the be all and end all of blockchain and cryptocurrency. Um, enormous amount of innovation going on here, and I, so I'm optimistic in that sense. But it is it is a real concern. I don't dismiss it as a real concern. Um, and I don't think many people in the space really dismiss it either. Well, uh, an optimistic uh, story of innovation that will hopefully deal with some of those uh, potential environmental issues there. And rather than try and segue that, I'm just going to let us go on to the next section because that's quite a nice and, and cheerful way to... Just going to give it up. Yep. No, no, just going to dial that one in. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And we'll, we'll move on to our final topic, which is on whether greed is good and looking at the Prime Minister's recent comments. Earlier this week, the Prime Minister Boris Johnson told a private meeting of the influential 1922 Committee of Tory MPs that the reason we have a vaccine success is because of capitalism, because of greed, my friends. He then immediately told the audience to forget he'd said that, and somehow it just happened to fall into the laps of a large number of journalists. Uh, Of course, it has unsurprisingly sparked an immense amount of controversy. I kind of want to start with this ethical question about greed itself um, and, and we're not in fact greed is the driving force but behind capitalism as it's you know stereotypically golden gecko style said to be yeah sure um <laughs> look i can't I, i'm, I'm not going to be um a distant australian trying to comment on um the nuances of uh boris johnson's politics but i i think this conversation um uh sometimes gets it a bit wrong and I'm going to blame Adam Smith for this, not because it was his, Ooh. he was wrong, but he didn't quite um, have. And on that note, uh, thank you for listening to the, to the uh, Pit Factory podcast. So, yeah, so, but it's a, it's a language problem, right? So, so greed, um, using greed, and we might say, okay, well, you don't really mean greed, you mean self-interest. But again, I don't think that's quite the best way to frame um, what the value is of this. It's more... What's driving our economy, what coordinates our economy is the diversity of preferences and our desire to pursue those preferences. Some of those preferences are greed. Some of them I would like to harness as much resources of the world to myself as possible, or you could describe that as, well, self-interest. I'm going to act in a way that um, uh, works to my favor, that works for, to allow me to harness resources. But I think it's more about um, uh, the, the fact that we all operate in order to maximize our own preferences. And those preferences might be just harnessing resources, getting rich, but they also might be caring for our community. They might be participating in, in culture. Um, they might be donating to artists that I like. They might be, um, uh, they might be you know, protecting my family, they might be um, sharing things with friends and so forth. Those are, those are preferences. Now you can, I, I, I can tell a story that that's sort of self-interest. I can even tell a story that that's sort of greed, but I think this greed is good model has perverted a lot of um, ways that we rhetorically discuss the value of um, individual pursuits in a decentralized economy. Um, I'd be interested in your views, though. Yeah, I think there's a bit of a risk with uh, Boris kind of repeating a Thatcher here. You know, Thatcher's classic, there's no such thing as society, that it, it becomes 
a misunderstood meme in and of itself. And then it's used as a, a kind of battering ram against Tories. And, and of course, in politics, we know words matter. Like in a sense, all we have is words and our ability to explain ideas in a succinct way. And Boris has always been very good as a kind of provocateur, but it's almost like for a moment he forgot that he was the prime minister and kind of just spurted it out and said, oh no, people actually take attention of the things I say these days. I need to be careful about what I do. Um, and I think it is counterproductive to, in the first instance, if you support free enterprise, which I think in this case, Boris is trying to do to, to talk about greed. I think you must much better talk about how enterprise helps um, and rewards hard work, how it provides benefits to society, like the vaccine, which is the topic of discussion, but of course, more, more broad benefits, um, as well as, you know, economic growth is socially responsible or, you know, lifts people's standard of living. I think you can, you can, without even necessarily needing to go into the depth of explaining how the mechanisms work. And I don't have as much an issue with saying in an Adam Smithian way that, um, the free market harnesses people's self-interest to get them to serve others. Uh, and that it's it's not that greed is good, it's that profit is good because the pursuit of profit in order to be profitable, um, you, the, the, the best way to do it in a free market economy without cronyism and, and corruption and, and trying to steal resources from other people is to provide a product whose some of its parts are of a higher value than its, than its inputs. It's creating value for others. And, and, in the sense Adam Smith explained that by saying you know, that the baker's um, not benevolent in baking your bread, but they're doing it in their own interest. But as a virtue of doing that, you, you've made people selfless and serve others. And I think that's, in my mind, is the great value of, of capitalism or free markets is that it harnesses something we know is inevitable, which is humans in some ways are going to pursue their interests, however you define their interests. Um, and I think you kind of said that a second ago, it doesn't necessarily have to mean interest for money, it can be an interest for culture or, or an interest for family. You know, people trade off lower salaries and, and working less to spend more time with, with whoever they want. You know, that's having that freedom, having that ability to design your life in the way you choose um, and, and provide great benefits. I think we've seen, I think there is a good story from the pandemic as we're saying about profit. You know, profit is why the supermarket shelves were still filled throughout the pandemic, why they made sure they got that toilet paper there, uh, why Netflix has tens of thousands of hours of entertainment, why Amazon delivers millions of goods. There is a, I think there's a good story about profit not being evil. And I think, not that we necessarily need to win the word profit, but I think we can try to explain that phenomenon. My view here has always been that there's a separation in most people's minds between greed and self-interest, with greed being associated with kind of zero-sum games. So you know, taking from one person and, and at their expense. And whereas self-interest, I think most people understand is perfectly reasonable. I think this is backed up by looking at why people say they care about inequality. Uh, and most people, if they're offered um, a fair kind of, they're talking about fairness as the thing that they value most. As long as, well, as long as inequality was arrived at fairly, um, and in that sense, wasn't kind of zero sum, it wasn't greed, it wasn't taken from other people. They're perfectly happy with that. There's various um, papers looking at laboratory studies, cross-cultural research that find that humans in general, they tend to prefer fair distributions rather than equal ones. And when fairness and equality clash, then people tend to prefer fair inequality over unfair equality, uh, if that makes any sense. So for me, this is just, it's an unfortunate example of where someone's become 
obsessed with uh, um, the alliteration of breed is good, just purely because the alliteration is a good catchphrase in the sense that it, it sounds memorable. Unfortunately, it's become memorable for all the wrong reasons, and it doesn't kind of communicate the, the benefits of capitalism to both the individual and society at large um, through free exchange and through creating wealth for both yourself and others, that kind of non-zero-sum um, situation that you're discussing. There's an interesting way to think about this, and just to um, save my bona fides as an Adam Smith scholar. Um, uh, Smith doesn't just talk about self-interest per se, but he has this idea of the impartial spectator as the um, as a governor, an external governor of your own, or an external judge of the way that you might act in any given circumstance. So he has this much richer idea about um, uh, how we should form our preferences, how we should understand our self-interest that, that uh, in fact, I think nightly, nicely fits what you're just describing, the division between sort of um, greed as extractive or exploitive and self-interest as um, just just in the very nature of how we have to go about things in order to look after ourselves and the people that we care about. And of course, if we lived in a, in a fully capitalist society, then we wouldn't have this basically any of these examples, we certainly wouldn't have many examples of the zero-sum uh, exploitative form of, of wealth acquisition. But of course, we don't live in a pure free market society. So we have got real-world examples that are very salient in people's minds of greed being bad. The problem is that if you say greed is good, obviously you're associating that in their minds with, with free market capitalism and you're just messing up the picture. Yeah, look, look it's hard because I think the... Judgment about what constitutes a fair return is very much based on sometimes economic ignorance about the nature of the economy. Um, so, for example, um, most people aren't going to object when a superstar, a sports star, a music star um, uh, negotiates a better contract for themselves in the, in the millions or tens of millions of um, dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, but we do have this idea that if you work on Wall Street, then somehow your gains are illicit or somehow that the, the money that you might get is obscene, even if it's a fraction of what, say, Michael Jordan got at his height. Um, now, part, I can tell you a story about a lot of that is based on overregulation. A lot of that is based on too big to fail, but not all of it is. Some of it is genuine value adding, moving capital around the economy adds to economic efficiency. But um, part of the, um, if I ask somebody on the street, well, how much do they deserve to get? Um, uh, it, it wouldn't be in the in the millions or even hundreds of thousands. It would be, it would be far less. So I, I think there's a lot to that, but it's also, um, there's a lot of ignorance about how the economy functions and where value is created and added into the economy. And that goes into um, many of our conversations about what is fair, what is self-interest versus greed. Yeah, I think I struggle in a sense is that um, we as free marketeers more or less understand that that value is subjective and that if someone is willing to, you know, pay a lot of money for an NFT or pay someone a lot to work in finance, that that is inherently showing the value of what people perceive that value to be. Um, whilst I think there's that natural human instinct to ascribe what you think you objectively should be the value of something. And that if you don't think it's valuable, then um, society at large shouldn't think it's valuable either. Just going back to that, that point you made earlier, Chris, I think you're kind of referring to the, the, the classic kind of Adam Smith line that man naturally desires not only to be loved, 
but to be lovely or to be that thing which is the natural and proper object of love. So I think in, in and it's a kind of the theory of moral sentiments, Adam Smith, that he understood that people's desires in the market and people's abilities to perform for others are naturally tempered by the fact that we want to be ethically and morally good and, and you have kind of a moral framework around our behaviour that, that stops people from being excessively greedy because no one wants to be said that they, despite the kind of quote ghetto, gecko stereotype, there's not that many people out there who aren't probably psychopaths who would be proud about being greedy and proud about stealing from others. Uh, and in a sense, this is a lot in, in you know, business mission statements. It's, it's not that people want to be greedy and make a lot of money. It's that they'll put a... a you know, the whole story around the purpose of their company and the value they're providing to others. Whether or not that's nonsense is probably an, another thing. Um, it, it's clearly it's something that a lot of businesses want to do and they want to show their customers that, that they want to be good. They, they, in the, you know, they want to be loved in the, the kind of Smithian way. So I think that's probably a sense in which things are functioning pretty well. Um, kind of just, just moving on, though, to more the specifics of where Boris's comments were about, which is about the vaccine development. Um, a company that did try to be uh, good and, and moral and loved was, was AstraZeneca in uh, the vaccine development because they, they chose uh, not to take uh, profit in the initial stage. They probably sacrificed billions of pounds of, of money by, by not charging a, a market price for their vaccine. And subsequently, they've, they've come under extreme pressure and extreme attack from, from the EU and US regulators and whatever else. In my humble view, I think they, they should have taken a profit and, and that might have created better incentives. At the very least, they deserve a profit. I think if anyone ever deserves a profit, it's probably people who are making vaccines to, to save lives and, and economic lockdowns. But then as it comes back to the other question is, um, can we as free marketers really take that much credit for the vaccine success? Is this not just thanks to huge government investment in uh, pre-purchasing the vaccines, uh, as kind of Owen Jones has said, uh, and it will cause huge investment in building the factories and subsidizing the development? Or is this a success of markets? Look, uh, it can't it be both? Um, so I, I think it would be it would be fallacious of us to say that this was a free market driven thing. And, and it's it's even more complicated than you say, because many of the innovations that um, allowed us to develop or allowed these companies to develop these vaccines so quickly were sponsored by government research, um, uh, developed by universities, um, developed by complex cross subsidies um, uh, that have allowed them to do that. I, I, I don't know whether the um, taking credit game is particularly interesting. What I am interested in is um, what is the, how are we going to respond to the next crisis? How are vaccine manufacturers and innovation innovators going to respond to the next disease? Um, or how are they going to use these innovations that we've so rapidly demonstrated are so successful to tackle problems that exist but may not have um, been the subject of government largesse? Um, are they going to be allowed to to take what they've invented and turn a profit over the secondary innovations that might come from it. Um, when we when we think about particularly in the um, frontier medical space where there's such a huge long lead time between um, the innovation and the distribution of that innovation, um, we've got to think about how uh, we've got to worry about what we call dynamic inconsistency, that the decisions that we make now in the heat of the moment aren't going to um, harm incentives 
in the future, five, 10 years down the track. So yes, I think that AstraZeneca and Pfizer and everybody should be basking in massive profits right now. But I want them to bask in those profits, not because I just want them to become rich, because I love I love um, pharmaceutical executives to be wealthy, but I want them to bask in those profits so the next time they think, wow, we should chase this next huge windfall. For me, the uh, very similar view on the credit taking game here. I think, why can't it be both? Obviously, there's a, a role for the, the pharmaceuticals and for uh, government being involved, but it, it kind of ties into the, this broader, I guess, skepticism or criticism of, of markets. I think the best example that you can have is uh, Mazzucato's book, The Entrepreneurial State, talking about how well the government takes on all the risk but doesn't get any of the rewards, all the private companies getting uh, the rewards with, with none of the risk. And, you know, her example of the iPhone. I think it applies equally when it comes to, to vaccine development. Just, well. just to clarify, it's not the iPhone. It's a very small part of the screen of the iPhone, yes. <laughs> well, yeah, quite. A very small part of the screen of the iPhone. And, and, and her argument is, well, you know, a lot, some of these technologies going into the iPhone were developed through government funding. Of course, that's true. But it's equally true that Apple, as a private company, took on pretty significant amount of risk when it comes to combining these technologies and integrating them into a commercial product that people actually wanted to buy. And you can just have to look at some of the failures of other smartphone launches around the same time to show that this isn't risk-free and it certainly wasn't difficult. And I think if you apply the same sort of lesson to vaccine development as well, sure, it's true that you know the government is, is funding these companies, but the, the pharmaceuticals are definitely taking on risk. I mean, Anyone who says they're not, just imagine if one of Pfizer or AstraZeneca's clinical trials had, had completely failed or they misreported it and the vaccine had been rolled out. I think that's a pretty significant amount of risk that they're, they're taking on. So just in terms of where, where the credit is, I think obviously you've got to say both, but you need to be very wary about concluding that while well, government needs to take a more active role in these sort of innovative processes than, than has been the case already. It seems like the balance we have now is, is certainly better than it would be in the, the entrepreneurial states model. So, so, so that's right. And we've got to think about, we've got to distinguish between innovation and invention. Um, and often government funds invention. But innovation is a much more complicated idea. It's about what people in the business world might call product market fit. It's not just about, have I created something? Have I invented some basic science or have I invented some new material? It's how do I get it into the hands of consumers? How do I develop a product that adds value to those consumers' lives? And then how do I distribute it? Um, and the story about the vaccine rollout, and obviously it's very different in lots of different countries, but actually, to my mind, it's a strong demonstration of the value of market innovation where Apple has no trouble rolling out a global launch of an iPhone, but a lot of countries are really, really struggling to roll out a global, a, a national launch of a vaccine. Just imagining a kind of prime minister holding up the vaccine in a Steve Jobs style press conference <laughs> presenting the vaccine. It'll be in all good stores in the next two days. I'd, I'd like our prime minister to do that, if only it would demonstrate that we have the vaccine in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm told that we have it, but that's very unclear to me. Um, uh, so, yeah, no, I, I, I think w when we think about the role of the state, the, the state can do 
some things very well. It can just pour money into something and it can pour money in very, very quickly. And often it can pour money in with very little controls, which is exactly what we needed to do at the start of the pandemic. And that's what a lot of governments did, actually, particularly the United States, but I know the United Kingdom did very, very well. They just took a whole bunch of money that they had and just dumped it on a sector. That works in some very narrow cases. But what we need is the whole distribution, the whole supply chain, the um, innovation to the final product. And that's what markets are actually very, very good at doing. And I think we should remember here as well that the whole idea of the, the kind of Mazzucato entrepreneurial state is the state should be constantly kind of setting these missions, funding them, picking which companies are best at achieving the missions. Um, and I, I think the, the fundamental flaw in that is the bureaucrats don't actually know what the mission should be. I don't think we do know what the mission should be, what the kind of frontier innovations are that are going to be of the most potential. And we still don't know which companies are best at achieving that goal. And, and the other, I think, fundamental flaw, um, the kind of Mazzucato worldview, is that all oh, the government should take an equity stake. I mean, quite frankly, the government already does take an equity stake. They're called taxes. You, we, these companies, if they're successful... They're dividends, basically. I, 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 without, without going into... We, we could make a whole podcast just on Mazzucato. But they're, they're, <laughs> one, of, one of her... So she describes them as moonshots. And it's a super revealing metaphor. Because that's exactly what happened. The government... Poured a, or the US government at least, poured a massive amount of money into space travel in the 1960s and then 1970s. And we got very little out of it, at least from an economic perspective. It's only now in the 2010s and 2020s that we're starting to see the commercialization of the space industry. So you can pour a lot of money into an industry, but you cannot get product market fit. That's what the market just a, a final thought from me after you mentioned matt about the, the problem with the idea of picking winners and losers and picking which companies to in to undertake a particular research or development project and the thing that popped to mind is just the uk's vaccine story is the complete opposite of that and it shows just how wrong it is our vaccine rollout has been so successful in part because we got a venture capitalist not a, a government bureaucrat to hedge their bets on lots of different vaccines produced by lots of different companies. Uh, and that's worked out very well, if you can contrast that to the fortunes of others. So uh, a kind of note, again, to end on there. And the reason why that's not applicable more broadly is basically because normally a bureaucrat, rightfully so, does not have the billions and billions to be able to spend on it. This is an exceptional case that it was worth the state taking on that risk and, and spending billions to, to buy lots of different um, vaccines. Normally, uh, you can't do that across every field all the time. Um, and that's why we have private market financing. And it's why we have bankers and venture capitalists to be able to do that task. And quite frankly, if a bureaucrat was good enough at doing it, they probably wouldn't be a bureaucrat. They'd, they'd be a venture capitalist or they'd be a hedge funder or they'd be in the finance sector. They'd be working for a bank. It doesn't, it's just not, it's just a, a skill specialization. Uh, we, we want bureaucrats to create a uh, I guess, an ecosystem and, and, and institutions that enable that to happen, not to need to do it themselves all the time. But on that note, I think we're, we're kind of ready to finish up here. So thank you very much for listening to this episode of The Pim Factory. My name is Matthew Lesh. I'm the head of research at the ASI. You've been listening to my co-host and our head of programs, Daniel Pryor, as well as Dr. Chris Berg, who's the um, co-director of the RMIT Blockchain Innovation Hub. 
Uh, once again, thank you very much for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do subscribe and rate on your chosen podcast provider. Mm-hmm.